Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. Hey, guys, it's Chris. Thanks for joining me today on the Fort. I've been preparing for this episode for a couple weeks now. We're going to do Real Estate Syndication 101. So that's a big part of Fort Capital and how we've built our business over the last 16 years. It's been a hot topic on Twitter and other platforms. And so my goal today is to really lay it all out there. Um, I've tried to take as much feedback from folks on Twitter and just people that I've talked to. And I think we're in for a really cool episode. So thanks for continuing to join me and let's dive uh, right in. So to kind of set the stage, uh, let's just go to straight to the definition of what real estate syndication is. And I pulled this from the internet. So it's crowdfunding for real estate, essentially, before crowdfunding for real estate ever existed. In its most simple form, both syndication and crowdfunding involve pooling capital with other individuals for a common purpose or a common goal. So in the world of real estate, I'm going to go buy a deal or Fort Capital is going to go buy a deal. And rather than, let's just say we're going to raise $5 million, rather than go to one group or one person for all $5 million, we might go out to 50 people and ask for $100,000 a piece. It's, uh, it's an incredible way to raise capital. It's an incredible way to meet a lot of great investors. And it's been the model that we have uh, focused on really the last 16 years. How is syndication different than a fund? Well, basically, a fund is, um, in a way, it is syndicated. You might raise a, call it a $100 million fund, and you might raise, you know, uh, from 50 people. But that fund usually serves a, a, a lifetime. So that fund is good for three years. You're deploying capital out of that fund until you've deployed all your capital. Whereas the typical syndicated deal, you're raising capital just for one deal. Or maybe a subset of deals. It doesn't have a a lifespan on it, kind of like a fund does. And a REIT is basically a giant syndication of publicly available shares rather than privately available shares. And so a REIT in its simplest form is all this real estate. And rather than owning it privately, you just own a public share. It's another way of thinking about a syndication. So at its core, syndication is bringing lots of investors into the pool you know, we now again hear of things called crowdfunding, but it's almost, it's essentially crowdfunding. Crowdfunding, I think, is more analogous with how it's raised, which is kind of over the internet using technology. And syndication has typically been kind of pre-technology, but they've now kind of merged and they're really one thing. Um, I think we just call them syndications or we call them crowdfunds. How, you can call it whatever you want. Um, I still kind of prefer a syndication, but to each his own. How is syndicating different uh, than investing just your own capital with maybe some family members is something that I've been asked. Well, if you're pulling together uh, capital from Uncle Tom and Cousin Joe and Aunt Lily, not only are you raising money from family members, but you're syndicating that from family members. Again, it's when you're pooling capital from a lot of different sources. So now that we kind of know what syndication is, uh, let's just get into... um, you know, how a syndicate usually works. There's usually somebody that goes in, 
and or company and they're going to buy a deal and there's a general partner which is also known as the operator or the sponsor they're the folks that are actually finding the deal executing the deal working on the deal post close and then there is uh kind of the limited partner which is just somebody that's writing a check to help fund the deal but their 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 role in the deal is very passive in nature and so again I'll read some definitions uh that I pulled offline A general partner has the authority to act on behalf of the business without the knowledge or permission of the other partners. Unlike a limited or silent partner, the general partner may have unlimited liability for the debts of the business. So what that's saying is, again, they're the decision makers. They also hold the most liability. When you're buying real estate, you're often borrowing debt. And it's usually the general partner that has the risk if they go into default or they don't make payments. Limited partners don't have to worry about paying those debts. Their only exposure really is the equity that they put into it. And again, that's all spelled out in the guidelines of an operating agreement. And if you are a limited partner, I just highly suggest asking a general partner, what are my liabilities? Uh, What are you asking me uh, to participate in? I would guess that 99.999% of them, um, again, make you only a limited partner without exposure to uh, kind of debts and other things that general partners usually take on. All GPs make up their own rules. So there is no, you must do this rule. Um, There are general guidelines that all GPs follow, but this goes back to just because there's general guidelines in the way the industry works. I've seen lots of operating agreements where GPs kind of set the terms differently. Um, Nobody's more right or wrong than others, but I would get to know your general partner if you are an LP and ask them, you know, the the, the main terms of the deal. And again, I don't think you're going to be surprised from GP to GP, but depending on the type of deal it is, the the, the uh, location that it is, the type of capital being raised, there could be little nuances. So don't just assume that they're all kind of the same. An LP, what's the definition of that? A limited partner is a part owner of a company whose liability for the firm's debts cannot exceed the amount that an individual invested in the company. Limited partners are often also called silent partners. A limited partner invests money in exchange for shares in the partnership, but has restricted voting power on company business and no day-to-day involvement in the business. So again, think about it. General partner takes on more of the risk and liability, but also has the authority and majority decision-making power. Limited partner By definition, limited. You are limited to the decisions you're able to make, which are virtually none. um, And you are just asked to buy shares and participate as equity. For those in the stock market, uh, you could just assume if you went and bought a couple shares of Apple, that's kind of your exposure. You bought some shares of Apple, but you know, you're not making decisions at the company day to day. That's kind of how it works in real estate. I will give a caveat. Occasionally, um, and this is why a lot of folks syndicate so they don't have to deal with this these type of issues. But if you syndicate and you have a partner that is more than maybe 51% of the total LP equity, they might try and negotiate some major decision rights like when you can sell or refinance. Um, and they might also negotiate how is the entity taken over in the event that the GP uh, goes bankrupt, um, commits a crime, is, uh, is uh, they call it bad boy actions uh, or bad girl actions. And so 
Yeah. Limited partners do have some rights, but it's usually when things go really wrong and they have to decide who's going to step in and kind of take this partnership uh, forward if the GP is is now incapable of doing that. Um, and almost every uh, agreement has that. Again, as an LP, you hope to never get to that part of the agreement, but that's really the only place that I've seen you know, more voting power given to the LPs is usually when something's going really wrong or if somebody owns the majority and they just want to be involved in when can you sell and when can you not. We'll get into the advantages and uh, versus the disadvantages of syndicating. So advantages, and again, there could be more. I'm just going off what, what I pulled. The advantages, it allows access to LPs who might not otherwise have it. So, and this is this is across the entire um, investing spectrum. This isn't just to real estate, but we are now living in a world where I call it the the democratization of capital is happening right before our eyes. More people have access to investing today than ever before, uh, and a lot of that's because of internet and the te- and the technology now available to us. And things like social networks, where you can see in real time people doing deals. I mean, think pre-internet, the the majority of the people that got access to institutional quality deals and great real estate deals were folks that had a lot of money. Um, And that was really it. You just went to one or two groups, you raised a big check, and that was it. Syndicating and crowdfunding uh, allow for access for folks to get into opportunities that they weren't able to get into before. Um, and I think we're watching this play out in real time and we still have a long way to go, but it is, uh, it's fascinating to see the folks that even when I started 15 years ago, um, the folks that are investing with us now versus before I have met people all over the country. I've met people internationally that want to invest with us. And 99% of those relationships were fostered online. They look at our deals online. They make commitments online. Our Almost our whole relationship is online. And um, yeah, syndicating is really cool for, for giving access to a lot of people. From a GP perspective, you're able to have more investors. So... Um, you know, some people might say, well, it's good to have one investor, uh, just one big investor. You don't have to worry about all these other investors. Um, and while there's some merit to that, I would say, well, what happens if that investor decides they're not interested in investing in industrial anymore? You know, you're kind of left to go find somebody. When you're syndicating, you know, at Fort, we now have 600 plus investors. You're always building relationships. You're not dependent on any one investor for the success of your capital raises. And, it's just less risky. Now, maybe a disadvantage to that might be, uh, you know, folks that have a lot of money and a lot of sophistication in investing. If you were just to have one partner, they might be around in a downturn when you want money the most to pick up cheap assets. Uh, will those folks uh, that, that are syndicating be around in a downturn? I don't know. We'll see. We haven't had one in a while. But I, I like the idea of more investors not being dependent on anyone for our success. And I think most syndicators would say the same thing. Syndicating, rather than maybe putting in a fun advantage, you get to thumbs up, thumbs down the deals that you see. And what I mean by that is Fort Capital will do 12 to 14 deals this year. If you are an investor of ours, you are not, uh, you do not have your feet to the fire that you must invest in every single one of them. You can look at all of them. You can do the ones you do want to do, and you can skip the ones you don't want to do. 
Whereas when you put your money in a fund, you know, you're kind of putting it in what we call a blind pool of capital. So you're putting your money in a fund. The fund usually has general guidance and direction. Hey, we're going to buy industrial assets in Texas. We're not going to buy anything but that. But your money is going into every deal that the operator, the GP, the sponsor uh, chooses to do. So uh, one advantage to syndicating is you get to pick and choose a little more than you do in a fund. And even with us, a lot of folks want the fund-like exposure. So we'll have folks that come to us and say, hey, we know you're going to do 12 to 14 deals this year. Put us in for a quarter million bucks in all 12 deals. We don't want to pick and choose. We just want to be in all of them. We, you're the expert, not us. So we see it all across the board. But I talk to a lot of people that really like the opportunity to pick and choose, and that's what syndicating offers them. GPs that choose to syndicate and have a proven track record and have been in the game a while, I think you can achieve better terms by syndicating than you can with just one partner. It's supply and demand. If you're just going to one investor, they call the terms. If you're going to 100 investors, you call the terms. And there there are general market structures and financial structures that are typically common, but as more LPs enter the game and as more capital is starved for yield, I think this bodes well for general partners and limited partners. Limited partners are getting access and general partners are able to get more economic terms in their favor. Large institutions, big family offices are notorious for making the terms their terms and not the sponsor's terms. Trust me, I've been in a hundred of these meetings over time and virtually every one of those meetings is more negotiation on how it gets more favorable for the big partner and that's it. So general partners that syndicate typically have great terms, which are still great for LPs, but I think it's creating an opportunity and a pathway for more people to get excited about being uh, general partners because there's going to be terms that are more favorable. And then, you know, another advantage is, you know, again, I don't have a, a ton of experience working with institutional capital. We have taken it in the past, but I have a lot of friends that have done it. I think personally, again, personal opinion, it's a much better life dealing with private investors in a syndicated situation than institutional investors. Institutional investors require tons of extra kind of just what I'd call bullshit that don't add any value to the investment, but it's more for reporting purposes. And, um, you know, they want to dictate who are the types of people that you're hiring and they want to dictate, you know, how often you're reporting. And they'll usually have analysts that are calling you to ask questions, you know, in the middle of the day when it's just kind of disruptive. And I'm not saying that syndicated LPs can't do those things, but because they're not one big check with all of these restrictions, they're typically a lot more lax and a lot more patient, and they don't come with as much you know, reporting requirements that personally, I don't think add a ton of value to the whole situation. You know, there's somebody listening to this that's going to disagree with that. Great. Call me, text me, email me. We can chat about it. Um, so I think it's an advantage to syndicating. You don't have to deal with all the institutional bullshit that institutions come with. Some disadvantages for a GP when you're syndicating it's not committed capital. So um, if you are a company that participates kind of in auctions or bid processes, a lot of the time, the question that you'll get asked from a seller is, where's your capital coming from? For folks that have raised a fund or have a committed JV partner, they can say, you know, here's my partner or here's the fund we've raised. The money's already in the bank and accounted for. Syndicators usually don't go raise the capital until after they've gotten the deal approved. So 
uh, in that situation, you know, especially for us, we are preaching more uh, our track record. We can always raise the capital. We can always close. Here are some of the investors that we work with. But again, it's not committed like it is with a fund. And so, you you know, you just got to be able to tell that story and, you know, not to go down this rabbit hole. For us, that forced us to really think about how can we be more competitive? We don't participate in auctions, but there still are sellers on big assets that want to know where your capital's coming from, even if it's an off-market deal. Nobody wants to waste time on a deal, you know, with a buyer that can't close. So we've gotten a a line of credit that helps us uh, with acquisitions. So that's almost like committed capital. It's it's debt, but it's uh, it's capital that's been committed to us from a bank and helps us in those situations. Again, won't really go down that rabbit hole. You could say disadvantages are, you know, some people say, I don't actually think this is a disadvantage, but it, you hear it often is, you know, why would you want to deal with a hundred investors? Uh, why not just deal with one? Well, you know, there's some merit to that. If we were doing deals 20 years ago, before there was um, software like Juniper Square, where I can do all of my reporting out of Juniper Square, I can manage the deal through Juniper Square in the data room. I have a built-in CRM. I can report by sending an email once, but it is customizable to every investor. So. I would tell you that it is easy. If you build a great team and a great process, it's as easy to manage a hundred investors as it is one. And you might actually say it's easier. And the reason it's easier is because if you're doing your job and you're reporting uh, correctly and you know how to launch a deal and take in investors and get subdoc signed and you learn all that, which Juniper Square makes unbelievably easy then you don't have investors that are also with all these other requirements that you're doing throughout the year that syndicated investors don't ask for. Again, that's something that like an institution might ask for. So hours spent total, I could make an argument we spend less time with 100 investors than we would with one big investor. I mean, I have friends that have to get on two and three hour calls every week or every month to talk to the institution about how the deal's going. And like every single one of them tells me this is their least favorite call of the week. This could be done in a simple email. It could be done, you know, with a quarterly report. But those are just the nuances that people want to know. And I'm not bashing institutions, rightly so. They're managing money for, you know, you take like a CalPERS, the the, the California State Pension Fund for Teachers. They want to make sure that their money is is uh, safe because they're they're putting it out on behalf of thousands of teachers that are require that are depending on it to um, retire one day. So I get why they do it. I don't think it's value add. I think it annoys a lot of people. In fact, I think that will change too if institutional capital wants to be competitive with with syndicated capital. But let's we'll see how that goes. So that that kind of goes through some advantages and disadvantages. Sorry if I missed something. We'll go into what should LPs be looking for in a GP. Look, what you want in a GP, it's pretty simple. Somebody that knows what they're doing, somebody that has a track record to prove that they know what they're doing, and somebody that's honest and honestly a good person. There's all different type of general partners, and there's people that focus on certain markets. There's people that focus only on certain asset classes. There's people that focus on every asset class. There's people that focus on every asset class in every market. There's people that 
only focus on certain assets in certain markets. Those people will all, uh, there's a wide range and who you choose to invest with is totally up to you on those merits, but making sure that they have a track record and that they, you know, they've done what they said they're going to do is important. Alternatively, look, everybody's starting, uh, everybody starts their first, everybody's got to do their first deal. So if you're doing, if you're investing with someone that's doing their first deal, maybe ask them about their track record of, you know, where they were working before or what gave them the confidence to be able to do this deal. I highly believe that the folks that are doing their first deal are some of the best people to invest with. They have the most on the line. Uh, if you go 0 for 1, that's that's batting zero, uh, as opposed to the person that's done 100 deals that might go you know, 100 for 1. So there is no right answer there. But I always ask, you know, what's their track record? What do they know about what they're doing? Do they have good references and do people like them? Are they honest? Um, and those are all pretty easy things to figure out pretty quickly. Um, so some questions you might ask, again, not being redundant. Do you have a track record of your performance? A track record usually comes in the form of a spreadsheet or a slide that says, here are all the deals we've done and here's how they performed over this period of time. It's pretty simple. If you're dealing with a GP that doesn't have a track record, dig a little deeper. Maybe they do and they just haven't put it on paper, haven't put them on paper. Anybody calls us at Ford Capital and wants to know our track record, we send it to them immediately. Um, and that that document's an important document to us. We're adding to it and we're updating it at all times. You know, just like in professional sports or in golf, you can go pull up somebody's statistics on, you know, their career driving average or shots gained, you know, uh, T to green or their putting average, whatever. I'm using golf. What are the statistics that you're holding a GP to? They're professionals too. That's what you find in the track record. You might ask them, what are the time horizons they hold assets for? Some people want their capital put to work and they want it to stay to work for a long time. Some people want to get in and out and make a quick return. Um, Some people are focused on IRRs and some people are focused on multiples of capital. Good thing to ask. What's your average hold period and why? And there is no magic answer there, but you're trying to align with something that you want to be a part of. So some people only want to be in deals for two to three years. Create the, you know, the Blackstone model, buy it, fix it, flip it, get into a deal, create some value and let's get out. Um, Some people would say, hold it forever, get into a deal, create some value, refinance it, return as much equity as you can, and let's just hold. But there's just something to ask. Ask what is their skin in the game? Skin in the game means how aligned are they with the deal? How how much do they get stung if the deal doesn't work? And how much do they generate if it does work? You want a GP that's excited about the deal and that cares about it when they go to sleep. Uh, You can ask them how much equity are they investing in the deal? You can ask them who's guaranteeing the debt on this? Who's responsible for the payments and who's on the hook if things don't go well? And I will give this to all my GPs out there and just anybody out there, because even LPs, you know, they have their own lives too, whatever their professions are, whether they're lawyers, doctors, they own businesses. At the end of the day, there is no more skin in the game than your reputation. Now, some people don't want to just hear that, but I will tell you after 16 years, the one thing that keeps me up at night the most isn't my investment in the deal. It isn't the fact that I have a loan, you know, that I've guaranteed. It's my reputation. 
And if you care about your reputation, then you'll care about, then that fundamentally makes you care about not defaulting on a loan because things would have had to go bad for that to happen. It, it makes you protect your equity. But find people who you can genuinely look in their eyes and go, this person's more scared about harming their reputation than anything. And everything else tends to play itself out. Those people you can sniff out very quickly. And again, it shows up in their track record. It shows up in the people that have invested with them over time, the consistency of how long people have invested with them. At Fort, we have people that have been with us 15 years. I won't throw out names, even though there's a few people listening that know who they are, that have done 20 or 30 deals with us. They do every deal with us. They don't even, I'm pretty sure, don't even look at our deals anymore. They just see one come out and say, yes, that's like the nirvana of being a great general partner. They trust me. They trust us. They've done 20 or 30 deals. They realize that we are experts in what we're doing. And those are the people you want to find. Again, at one point, we were doing our first deal. And I'm still forever grateful to the people that gave me capital to do my first deal. And even in those situations, reputation is really on the line. I've bet on a lot of first-time deal doers, and it's worked out really well. But again, I've really asked the questions of what makes them the right people to be doing their first deal. So those are some things would would do when evaluating a GP. Somebody asked, you know, best practices for finding a co-GP. A co-GP can look like lots of things, but in this instance, it is uh, some like maybe you're doing your first deal and you just don't have the balance sheet or the financial wherewithal to sign on a bank loan or put up the required equity. You know, usually general partners have to put in anywhere from call it two to 10% of the the equity in a deal uh, on the LP side. Um, And that ranges really because of the size of deals. You know, the larger you do, 10% can become a lot of equity. But a co-GP in a financial situation might be somebody you bring in that's helping you sign on the note. Uh, so they're sharing in your promote. Maybe they, they might be sharing in some of your fees. They're helping you put up the required amount of equity that the GP needs to put in. And there really is no, you know, uh, magic in how to find these people. It's like one, find somebody that uh, has a, a balance sheet um, that a bank looks at as reputable. You know, you might look for someone that has experience in the industry, although it's not required. A big balance sheet's a big balance sheet. It depends if you're actually looking for help from these people. And, you know, go and ask people, what are the, go ask people in the community or the market, you know, what are typical terms that you would offer someone for a balance sheet? The first deal I ever did, um, and he's been a guest on here and I'm forever grateful and people have heard me talk about him a lot, Adam Blake. First development we ever did over at TCU, we developed 24 townhomes. I needed a loan from Mutual of Omaha, and I couldn't get the loan on my own. And so I think the deal was like a 10 pref, you know, 70-30. And Adam uh, signed on as a co-GP, and his entire role in the deal was putting up his balance sheets so that we could get the loan. And I think we gave him uh, 25% of the the general partnership for helping us secure the loan. And I think he helped us put up some of our money as well. I can't remember that part. But look, at the end of the day, we wouldn't have gotten the deal done if somebody hadn't been willing to sign on the dotted line. 
it's not easy to get someone to sign on a bank loan without having a good relationship with them or a track record. So I'm not saying it's easy. It's probably easier if you've you know worked in real estate for 15 years and you're just leaving a big company to go start doing your own deals. But just like you, just like an LP would underwrite a GP, a co-GP, someone you're trying to get their balance sheet to help you out is going to underwrite you as well. So it works in both scenarios. What are some of the uh, types of deal structures uh, out there and what are their merits? What's the simplest structure that we've seen work well? This comes in all shapes and forms, but the typical deal that you'll see is some type of preferred return with some type of split. Now, you can make it more complicated than that if you want. You can do multiple splits. Um, you can do different tiers, but I'll go a little deeper on this. So you'll typically see what's called a preferred return. Uh, so, hey, Mr. Investor, Mrs. Investor, give me your money. We're going to go buy this deal. I'm going to give you uh, a six to eight pref on your money, which basically means if you give me $100,000, the six to eight pref is like interest. I owe you six. Let's just say it's a six uh, a six pref. I owe you the first six thousand dollars a year because you put in a hundred, and you're achieving six percent. So let's just say we do a deal in a year. Let's just say we bought it and sold it. You know, a year later, the way the order of cash flows would go is your hundred that we sold it. Cash has all come into the bank. Is your hundred thousand dollars? then your $6,000 that you've earned, then we split the rest of the profits based on whatever the split was agreed to. You'll see anything from 80-20 to 50-50. So uh, let's just say, again, you gave 100 grand and it's a 60-40 split and we made 200 grand or the total amount of cash back into the account was 200. Investor, you'll get your 100. You'll get 6,000 of the pref and the remaining 94 94,000 will be split 60/40. That is a typical deal. Now, there's way we can get way more complicated with what they call waterfalls or tiers. That basically is the same structure where it's hey, you get your pref press the split, but as you achieve different IRR hurdles throughout the deal, the splits get better on behalf of the GP. So it might be, you know, hey, it's a six pref, 80-20. And once that's returned a 15 IRR, everything above a 15 IRR is split, you know, 50-50. And so it gives the incentive to the GP to hit big IRRs. That doesn't necessarily incentivize long-term holding, but it does incentivize hitting big IRRs. And so most typical, call it a, I just call it a pref split model. You know, something less typical, we've had a lot of investors ask us, what is a long-term structure that you could put into place? And when you have a preferred return and this and, and all this stuff, it's typically creating short-mindedness because the pref, which is this, accru this accruing interest rate, and sometimes you're paying it current, sometimes it's accruing. Either way, it's you know, every day I think of it as a clock ticking. It's like, you owe that investor more money. That 6% is ticking every day. It just makes you want to do things in the short term to try and pay off that equity as quick as possible, which isn't a bad thing. But if you're trying to hold something for, call it 10 years or like a family would hold it, 
a PREF can make it to where if you aren't able to get back that equity, even if it's a good deal, the GP doesn't get to get into their promote until all of the equity and all of the PREF have been paid off. I kind of skipped over that part, so I'll stay here for a second. The promote, so the split, going back to a 60-40 split or a 70-30 split is, hey, Mr. Investor, once I've given you your money plus your PREF back, everything else we split. Well, the 40%, the the 60-40 split is going to, you know, call it a Fort Capital. The people that found the deal executed, that's our bonus for making a deal well done. Well, we don't get that until you have gotten all your money back and your PREF. So back now to what we are talking about on long-term hold structures, if you need to hold a deal and the PREF is accruing and you don't see a pathway to get the investors their money back plus their PREF, that doesn't mean it's a bad deal. I have great deals that, that might not do that over a period of time. But naturally, as a GP, you go, well, hey, if we're going to get paid, we either have to sell this deal we really just have to sell the deal. And that's often what happens. So another structure we put into place, and we designed this with some of our best investors, a lot of them being kind of family offices that participate in our syndicates. We said, well, what if we just did 80-20 or 75-25 split on all cash flows day one? No pref. So we buy a deal. The first dollars out the door split 75-25. The GP is already earning the LP is already receiving, and there is no hurdle that we have to achieve to get over for the GP to get paid. We're getting paid day one. Now, naysayers will sit here and go, uh, the GP can't get paid day one. They need to earn it. Okay, well, that's great. Then don't expect long-term 10-year hold periods because GPs don't necessarily want to get paid 10 years from now. How can I get paid earlier? And here's what you'll find. People that care about their reputation, people that have track records, people that have been in the game for a long time and are trusted by their LPs. My LPs are the ones that designed that structure for us. They wanted it. If you're still worried about a GP getting paid before an LP get paid, there's more to discover there. But if you're asking your GPs to hold for the long term and you're also asking them to have a pref in their deal, you're probably just not going to find a lot of GPs willing to do that unless in that deal, it's either so juicy that there's a quick pathway to refinancing out all the equity and getting the equity back plus the pref and then you can hold, which is typically more found in multifamily because they can pull on agency debt, which has higher leverage and non-recourse or deals that were like early cycle where, you know, there's a lot more appreciation. But if you're getting into deals like later cycle and you're going by the typical commercial loans, which are usually 65 to 70% LTV, um, it's harder to get all the equity out in a recap situation. And so you typically are going to have some type of equity in the deal for the first five years. And, you know, you just might not find GPs that are that patient. So we do a split on on uh, on cash flows day one. We've done it on several deals. Our investors love it. It keeps everybody aligned and incentivized. And there's no reason for us to sell other than it's just a good idea to sell, but not because we're over we're trying to overcome some hurdle that was created in the partnership documents. 
I wanted to go into something for a little bit as it relates to syndicates and private investments. A lot of folks, you know, if you're going to raise from 100 people, let's just say it's a big deal and you have 100 investors in there. We don't really even have deals with 100. So maybe I'll just say like 20 or 30. Not all 20 or 30 folks are aligned at all times. And what I mean by that is, if you've owned a deal for five years and you sent a survey out to your 30 investors and said, hey, how many of y'all want to hold and how many of y'all want to sell? There would be some that don't mind selling. There would be some that want to hold. There would be some that probably don't even know what they want to do. You do you're dealing with people. People have issues. Maybe somebody's got a kid going to college and they'd like the liquidity. Maybe somebody's, God forbid, getting a divorce and they need the liquidity. Uh, hell, maybe they just want the capital to go do something else with it. One of the uh, things that is a great thing about owning REITs is if you own REITs and you need the money, you just go click a button and you got your money. When you're in private deals, uh, you're not getting your money until the GP either decides to sell, that you know maybe there's been a refinance of some sort. So I think something that we're going to see more of, and you don't see it a ton yet is kind of the secondary market for LP interests. And so I've had an idea and I'll go a little bit into it, but this is an idea at this time. We've done it with a few of our partnerships and it works. And I got this idea from one of my mentors, but it's like, how do you create liquidity for LPs? And what I would tell you is the best way that I've seen it done, and please reach out if you've seen a better way, I'm always interested in hearing this stuff, is you basically, at the end of every year, you create some type of board that the LPs agreed on, the LPs and, and everybody's agreed on. That could be the general partner. That could be you know maybe a, an employee within the firm, maybe a CPA, uh, somebody. But it's kind of this informal board. And at the end of every year, you value the partnership as a board. You're not paying some appraiser to come in and appraise it every single year. It's just kind of a good faith estimate. And the incentives are aligned to estimate it correctly. It's There's no incentive to undervalue it, and there's no incentive to overvalue it. And then at the end of the year, you come up with that value, and you send it to investors, call it on you know the year end. So maybe you spend the first two weeks coming up with that value. And then on every year on January 15th, your LPs know that they're going to get a notice of value. And they can make a decision at that point. They have from January 15th to call it February 1st or even February 15th, give them 30 days to make a decision of whether they're going to sell some of their shares. And as a GP, you can set the rules. Like maybe, you know, somebody could sell all their shares that year. Maybe they can only sell a maximum of 50% of their interests every year. But in any way, shape, or form, they have that 30-day window every year to elect to sell something based on the value that was given to them from the partnership. And it's usually at the value less 6%, which represents what closing costs would be. Now, there's a million little nuances to this. You could say, you know, you at least have to, there's no liquidity options for the first five years, but after five years, we'll start offering you could offer liquidity options in year one. Again, the GP could offer however they want to do it. But the, the way I've seen it is there's usually a lockup for at least three years. And then 
people have options. So if you're an LP and you decide you want to sell, you're going to sell at the value less 6%. And now you're probably asking, well, who am I going to sell to? And that's where I think things get interesting. And I think having, uh, you know, I think there's more technology that's going to be built around this and more transparency. But right now we go to the current partnership and offer those interests to the LPs. And basically, let's just say somebody was selling a hundred thousand dollar interest. We could go to the other, you know, 29 investors still left in the deal and say, does everybody want their pro rata share of this investor's equity at this price? And you might have a lot of people say no. Uh, maybe somebody says yes. Or you can go out to the market and just bring in a new LP. But the typical way, and you might say, well, like, okay, well, what if everybody says no? You know, could the partnership maybe just buy it with the current equity in? Again, this is another nuance. But the person that I've seen do this really well, they don't offer all the cash up front. What usually happens is, let's just say, you know, Mr. Investor, I'm going to pay you out at value less 6%. And it's just basically going to be like a three to five year note at their rate plus prime. So you might pay them, you know, 25% of that up front. And then you basically turn them into a uh, note holder and it converts to debt and you pay them out over three years at, at some preed upon interest rate. Um, and that makes it easier to make those payments. Now, somebody might say, well, what happens if everybody wants to sell? Well, if everybody wants to sell, then the GP can make a few decisions. Maybe they just decide to just sell the asset because it would be, you know, tough to, if everybody wants to sell, they're clearly not going to be buying from each other. You could go find another investor to come in and just buy everybody's equity out. And typically the only time anybody, you know, to get, and, and that's the other part, to get all 30 people to want to sell, that's actually typically going to be at a really high price. Some people might say, well, everybody's always going to want to sell when, when shit's hit the fan. Well, if shit's hit the fan, then the value that's going to be put on that partnership on December 31st is going to be a very low value. It's not going, again, they don't get this opportunity throughout the year. It happens once a year. And so you're going to lower the value quite a bit. Uh, and if everyone's to sell at that rate, then it's going to be attractive to somebody. That's why there is no incentive to overvalue it or undervalue it. So long story short, I think secondaries are huge. I think it's going to become more prevalent. It's where as an industry, we have the most opportunity to create liquidity in, a, in an environment where there hasn't been much. Um, and this was a way to educate some of you on how you might think about it. Doing an offering once a year on a set timeline that's pre-agreed to um, and 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 coming up with you know, uh, uh, arranged uh, ways to create that liquidity. Let's take a quick break to highlight this episode's sponsor, Juniper Square. If you aren't familiar with Juniper Square, it's an easy to use all-in-one investment management software designed specifically for real estate owners. We have been using it at Fort Capital for several years now, and it has completely revamped the experience we're able to provide our investors through reporting, management, and efficiency. Here's a bit more on how Fort Capital utilizes the platform. Depending on how fast you read, you can look at our deal, approve our deal, sign our deal, and send money for a deal in under 10 minutes, assuming you've already understood what the deal is. Like the frictional cost of how that all moves through our system now is a matter of minutes, and it does not require any human interaction between that unless the investor wants it. We have investors that are in 15 different deals 
they can go into their portal online, go to their profile and everything they could want from every document they've signed to every report we've sent to every distribution we've sent, every point of contact with them throughout the life of the investment is documented in one place. You can check out episode 37 to listen to my full conversation with Brandon or visit cjunipersquare.com for more information. That's S-E-E junipersquare.com. And now back to the show. How is money made in the syndicating industry? I've talked a little bit about this, um, but for GPs, it is, it's a combination of fees and a promote. The promote is the split of profits they get after they have paid back their contracted obligations to LPs, which is usually a pref plus their principal back. That promote can be structured any way, shape, or form. And I won't use the 50 minutes going through all the different ways, but to go back to the pref split model, it's whatever is left over after the pref and the capital been paid back. That's typically how GPs make their larger lick. And throughout the process, they make fees, which I want to Uh, reiterate, and I'll say it again, I'm a big proponent that fees are what help a great company become great. You cannot build a great real estate private equity platform and charge no fees. It doesn't work. Um, And LPs, yes, there is a spot where fees can get egregious and you need to figure out what those are. But if you're an LP that is always trying to ding your GP for fees, You're also telling them, don't hire great people, don't incentivize them well, make sure that in a downturn when they need support the most, they're not going to have any fee money to come in and help. It's one thing to cut down fees, but do it for the right reasons, not just because you want to negotiate. Because I know a lot of folks that struggle that don't charge fees. And if you don't charge fees, where's the money come to hire great people? Incentivize them, bonus them. If you don't have fees, you can't do that. And business is all about people and people need to be paid. Again, that is not a GPs charge a lot of fees and and stick it to the LP. That is a, a, a statement to LPs just saying, know why you're paying fees and know when something's too much, but also know when something's too little. I am a byproduct of someone that thought we should never charge fees. We should just live out of the promote. And I was always wondering why I could never hire and retain great talent. It's also easy when you're first getting started as a GP to go, well, I don't really have any people hired anyway. So what are the fees? It's really just me or me and a few people. And I really want to make the returns on this deal look really, really good. So I'm just not going to charge any fees. That's great. It's not scalable. Yeah, the returns are great, but you're basically subsidizing the deal with your time and overhead to give returns to to LPs. That's fucking awesome. Do that, but it doesn't scale well and you can't build an organization off that. So do it early to maybe build your track record and build some relationships with LPs. But if you're trying to grow a large company or a company that has really talented people and you don't want to live a world where it's such a lumpy business where you have no revenue being generated unless you're buying or selling, you need to think about fees. You can't subsidize them forever if you want to be great. Here are the type of fees you might see out of a syndicator. An acquisition fee. That can be, it can be anything, but you'll typically see maybe one to 2%. Some of that has to do with how big a deal is. You know, if you're doing a $50 million deal, 2% of 50 million 
uh, is a hell of a lot more than 2% of a $5 million deal. So some of it has to do with just pure size. The way we like to think about it is uh, we will charge 1% if there's another person involved in the transaction, typically a broker that's getting paid. We'll charge 2% when we did the work of the broker and did a deal off market. And we're basically saying that 2% is always going to be paid. It's a matter of, do we take it all or are we splitting it with somebody? Asset management, those are the fees that are paid during the life of the deal uh, while the company is is executing and operating. Uh, and that goes to pay for the people that are executing the business plan and operating the deal. We have an admin and tech fee. So these are the small little admin fees that, that, that are required. It's also the technology that we use as an operator that help support these assets. And some people say, well, why do you charge for that? Is say, well, the other fees would be much larger, but we've chosen to allocate technology, which which gives us a lot more efficiency. And when we are operating assets and you're putting assets on a platform and you're and you're using that platform consistently, it costs money. And the deal should pay for that money if the deal is benefiting from that software. Again, this is something that we didn't do for a long time. It makes a lot of sense. The asset is getting a ton of value by paying for that fee. And it's something that you'll see from us. You'll see a property management fee. Uh, that's the, the cost to pay the property manager. That can sometimes be in-house if your sponsor is an in-house, as an in-house property manager, uh, property management company, or it can be outsourced. You'll see a construction management fee. This is when, uh, you know, if you're, if you're doing capital improvements, you're doing TI projects, if you're in multifamily, you're doing unit renovations or exterior renovations, uh, you're going to be paying a contractor. So there's typically going to be a fee there. That doesn't always go to the sponsor, but it's going to somebody. And I, I would just, again, wrap this up by the best GPs and operators charge what they're worth. You know, I will, it's a hill I'll die on that fees when structured the right way. And again, this goes back to reputation and being honest and and having a reputation. Great people are not going to be egregious, just period, end of story. But but not charging any fees because you think that you're going to get better returns or you're trying to compete is a race to the bottom. If you're a great operator with a track record, charge what you're worth because really sophisticated capital understands that fees pay for great people and great people are what drive returns. I would tell you today that the best operators that charge fees have way better returns than mediocre operators that charge no fees. And they could each do the same deal. And this it goes back to this goes back to people. Whoever has the best team is going to have the best returns over the long over the long haul. Period. End of story. And you can't pay those people without fees. So sorry for my rant on fees, but it's such a sensitive topic that gets brought up. And I've come from a world of never charging them early on. And I know the stress that puts on an operator. I know how it incentivizes people or the lack thereof. And it's just a hill I'll die on. How do you keep alignment between the GP and the LP? I've kind of already touched on this. So I won't spend too long, but um, that really comes down to back to the skin in the game question. What's the GP putting in the deal? What happens to them if the deal doesn't go right? What's the upside for them if it goes right? And, and we had a great investor the other day ask me, it's one thing to talk to me on the phone and ask what my desires are, but he, he just said, well, how is everybody else on the team incentivized? That's a great question. I won't go into that today, 
but um, it was a good question and we had a good answer. And I'll get, oh, shit, I'll go into it a little bit. Our key employees get pieces of promote. Our key employees uh, are bonus based on the performance of assets. I'll leave it at that. If you're building a great team and nobody on your team is sharing in the upside of the performance of your real estate assets, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying people uh, respond to incentives. Charlie Munger says, show me the incentives and I'll show you the outcome. I would be giving people, and we do, uh, pieces of the promote and bonuses based on performance. How do terms change between an acquisition and a development deal? Awesome question. When you acquire something, you buy it that day, you know what you paid for it, you know what you got. When you're developing something, it's a much longer time horizon. There's a lot more risk involved. Those returns typically need to be higher, but there's a lot more fees that go into it and just a lot more nuance. And so I didn't mention uh, in my kind of fee rant that developers will charge, in addition to everything I just mentioned, a development fee, which which is really... Um, it's kind of like the asset management fee before the assets actually going. So, you know, in a typical acquisition, you buy it and then you're charging asset management fees once you own it because that's paying for the team that's executing the business plan. You know, when you're developing, like, yeah, you might buy the land, but you're developing the building before it's actually in operation. And so you'll see people charge a development fee. But really, once a development is done and it's become stabilized, it's operating just like an acquisition would. So, Development deals don't change a ton other than you should expect higher returns if you're doing a development because there's more risk. And you should expect to pay kind of development fees that you wouldn't have to pay in an acquisition. That's like it in a nutshell. There's probably more nuance that I could go into, but um, you know, I don't want to put you guys to sleep. Uh, lenders in a syndication, it's really no different kind of deal to deal. I mean, in a syndication, the lenders are going to underwrite uh, who the general who the general partner is, who the sponsor is, what their track record is. Um, again, LPs don't have to worry about uh, signing on the, uh, the note. Although as an LP, it would be smart sometimes to ask your GP, like, who are you borrowing from and under what terms? You'll typically see that in a deal prospectus. But very often, the GP doesn't have the loan solidified by the time they send the deal prospectus out. So it's subject to change. So um, a lot of times it comes like, you know, pretty much identical to what you see. But it, it could be something that you ask. Um, the only thing really different, I would say, is when you have committed capital, you might see like in a fund structure, there's credit facilities that are dedicated to the fund. You typically won't see that in a syndicate model. You might get a line of credit tied to like CapEx and TI after you've acquired the property, uh, but you won't have a line of credit you know, that you can use for acquisition purposes unless you do what we did, uh, what I was talking about earlier. You kind of go out and you're able to source it. It's taken us 15 years to get this line of credit. I'm not saying it's easy. And for anybody out there looking to innovate in technology, Find ways for GPs to find lines of credit easier. It's an antiquated bullshit system, and it's 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 really crazy. And I'll give you an example. We have nearly a half a billion of assets under management, but because every asset sits in its own deal structure with its own investors, we can't use the collective strength of that to go get, call it a $50 million acquisition line of credit because we can't cross-collateralize all these different entities. 
If we had the exact same portfolio, though, in one fund that's all under one structure, we could go get a $50 million line of credit, no problem. So the fact that we've chosen to split things out in entity by entity has worked against us. I get why the banks don't do it, but there's got to be some type of solution because this like all or nothing kind of answer is is tough. We're finally there because we have built relationships. We've been there for 15 years, but getting this acquisition line, which we've been trying for years, is one of the biggest needle movers. That seems like a huge opportunity for somebody, but I won't go down that right now. Again, lender discussions, it's really no different no matter what you're buying. Uh, It changes as the deals get bigger, maybe your your lender isn't a community bank. You might be borrowing from a private fund or a, an insurance company or some type of pension fund. But typically, you're going to find, uh, or, or agency if you're in multifamily, but typically, you'll find people borrowing from community and regional banks. And those banks are more um, worried about the, uh, the sponsor. But as an LP, it is always good to know uh, what the deal terms of the loan are, because ultimately, you know, if you have a GP that's uh, that's not going to be able to pay them, or you know, they're getting some really risky loan, that ultimately puts risk on the deal. So it's still good to know about. All right. So what does the Fort Capital process look like? Before I get into this, I just want to reiterate that the investor for a lot of syndicators is the customer. Now, you do real estate deals and you have tenants and those are your customers. But for a syndicator that has lots of investors, typically, how you treat those investors matter. And I would say it even matters more for syndicators than just groups that might have one partner because you have lots of quote unquote customers. So you have to be thinking about them and you have to be prioritizing the experience And that experience starts from the first day they meet you and they decide that they want to become an investor and they want to onboard. And so when I'm talking about what do we do to onboard, what I'm saying is what happens from the time we hear from a potential investor to the time they're in our system? So it's not rocket science, but we've carefully thought out each detail, and I think it goes a long way, and we hear a lot of feedback for it. So right now, if you want to be an investor with us, you reach out to us. Uh, That could be through email. You could be calling us. We also have a portal on our website, www.fortcapitallp.com. There's a connect tab where you're able to connect and then go to an option that says that you want to be an investor with Fort Capital. And if you haven't gone through that step, calling or emailing will guide you there. And from there, we collect a series of what we consider critical information on who you are, your investor experience, are you accredited, what types of investments do you like to make, what what return thresholds are you looking to hit, do you like short-term deals, long-term deals, we're just trying to get to learn more about you. We then vet that information and uh, assuming that it has made it past that step, you'll get a link from us that has a few things. One, it has a template of an investor report, so you can see how we report. It has a template of an investor memo, so you can see how we um, present deals. And we we consistently present deals the same way every time. So you can get used to how we uh, present deals. You'll get a link to 
kind of our big summary deck, which is who we are, what we're doing, and how we're doing it. And then you'll get a recording that's basically an hour of me discussing what it's like to be an investor with Fort, how deals are structured, basically everything you can expect. After hundreds of new investor calls, what we did was we synthesized um, all the most important spots and topics that we hit on every call, and we put that into one episode that you can listen to. If after you have gone through all of that information and you want to set up a additional call to maybe ask any follow-up questions or get to know our team better, yeah, you'll have a call set up with somebody on our investor relations team, possibly our VP finance to go through that. And really, in all of that process, what we're trying to figure out is, are we a good fit for you and are you going to be a good fit for us? And that's really important as a syndicator because you're going to have lots of investors. And you know, when you start having 10, 20, possibly 100, 200, 300, what you'll find is you want to align with those people. And the more you can set up a process that helps you align with your investors, just like you would align with an employee or a spouse or somebody, it's really important because when people give you their money, they have a different relationship with you than most. They have, they're more sensitive to things, both good and bad. And so you really want to do the due diligence up front to make sure that you're bringing in the right investors. Because as I always say, um, not all capital is created equal. A dollar from uh, your enemy is different from an, than a dollar from your friend. While they're both a dollar, they come with their own strings attached. They come attached to emotions and things of that nature. So we always want to do a good job through our onboarding process and how we're vetting LPs to make sure that we're ending up in a situation where we're aligned with our LPs. So so now that you've been approved and you've been onboarded, what you get is a, um, a login to an account through Juniper Square. We use Juniper Square as our investor relations CRM platform, and it has changed our game forever. And so just like you would have uh, a bank account where you log in for all your banking information. Juniper Square's login is everything that you will do with our company going forward. All your investments will be managed there. All of your our communication and reporting will be managed there. That's how you'll receive your tax documents. That's how you'll know when you've been given a distribution notice. That's how you can track your investment performance. That is where you will go to see deals that have been sent to you and look into them. And so all of that, we want our investors to become very familiar with because a huge part of our uh, customer process is how they use Juniper Square and how it can delight them. So, you know, before we got onto Juniper Square, uh, we didn't have as, as great of a process. We managed contact information through things like Excel which might I add, Juniper Square adds a whole layer of security. You're dealing with a lot of people's sensitive information. It was obvious to us as we were growing and we had a, a growing list of investors and we were kind of hodgepodging all this together. You know, at the, at the forefront of our decision making was how do we delight the customer? How do we make the investor experience better? And three or four years ago when we got onto Juniper, we thought that bringing on a technology that was starting to streamline this and focus on the investor was important. And that's what we did. And ultimately, um, the customer experience continues to get better and better. And when you have a company like Juniper that is backed by hundreds of millions of dollars, they're consistently investing in the customer experience and we're able to draft off of that. So what are some of the technology impacts that you'll have as a syndicator if you choose to get on a Juniper Square uh, platform? So 
One is how you present a deal. So if you don't have anything, you might be emailing a deal to a bunch of investors. You're not going to know when you email that deal out who that deal is going in front of. You're not going to know if people open that deal or not. You're not going to see how the the amount of activity that they're doing when looking at that deal. Your deal's not secure. With Juniper, we send out one email. All of our investors receive it as a data room. Then on our CRM side, we can see who's logged into the data room, who hasn't, how many times they've logged in. We're very in touch with who's looking at the deal when. And we're also given software that's allowing us to watermark our documents so those private documents can't be shared all over the internet, which is really important. Again, when you're launching these real estate deals, you know confidentiality is important. And Juniper gives us a huge opportunity to keep our things uh, confidential while also creating a really elegant experience for investors to look at the deal and preview the deal. So now that we've launched a deal, what we'll do is there's a button that folks can press that's like, hey, I'm in this deal, and we'll start aggregating who's in the deal and for how much. We will um, give our investors a timeline, and we will also usually do a call 24 to 48 hours after we have sent the deal to investors to basically do a call and walk through the deal and give LPs a chance to ask questions. We record that call, and then we send that call out to potential investors that couldn't get on the call. You'll then, once you have submitted uh, to our deal or subscribed to the deal, you will be given a timeline of everything from there to closing. We will send our subscription documents and PPM documents to you through Juniper Square. You can either print them and sign them and return them, or you can sign electronically through DocuSign. We'll then be giving you a capital call information. We'll usually call capital a week to 10 days before closing so that we're ready for closing. Once all of that is completed, the investor, again, can log into their account. They'll see all their signed documents there. They will see every email correspondence we've ever had with them. So there's never the excuse of, you know, I didn't get this email or I wish I, you know, had seen that. It might have gone to my junk. All of our communication is also saved in your portal. So you can always see when we communicate. Well, then, like we said, you'll have your docs signed and we'll prepare for close. And again, during the life of owning the deal, when we report, you'll get an email that's automatically generated from Juniper Square, but you can find our reporting in uh, your portal. You will see all of the distribution notices that go out. And during tax season, you will get an, a notification through email, hey, your K-1s have been uploaded into your account. So again, it's an all-encompassing thing. And I think the most important part is how much that these companies like Juniper have thought about the customer experience, i.e. the real estate investor and the GP, all the needs that they have. And they've just taken what was a pain to manage with 10, 20, 30, 100 investors and have simplified it to where you're able to do a lot of things once, but it's customized for each investor based on their ownership percentage, their structure in the deal, et cetera. I don't think there's much more time as investors get used to this and a digital world continues to progress. This is becoming table stakes. LPs are demanding it. Um, you have to think that if you have an LP that's with multiple sponsors, over time, the ones that are using technology to make their life uh, simpler are going to continue to be the gold standard. And so, you know, we know our LPs are demanding it. The data is saying they're demanding it. 
The data is also saying that the GPs using it are starting to excel much quicker and are doing a lot more things and having a lot more to offer their investors and their employees. And so as this continues on, it's just becoming table stakes that using a platform like this is critical if you're going to be a great syndicator. So I'm going to talk just a little bit about the biggest tailwinds in the industry. I think that the common thing for that's been uh, talked about with syndicators is, oh, it's a pain in the ass to manage a ton of investors. Well, I think after what we just talked about, technology and software is getting rid of that friction. It's actually making it just as easy to manage as it was with a few investors. That's a huge tailwind for syndicators. There's software out there that make having lots of investors still very easy to manage. And again, something that's a huge tailwind. Investors are starved for yield right now, and the internet is providing access. So one thing that the majority of individual investors never had was access to deals. You know, they were given the stock market. They were given maybe a few other vehicles with which to invest. And that's changing by the day. You know, there's trillions of dollars of unrepresented capital that's gone unrepresented for decades. And those people, because of the internet and innovation, now have access to deals. And they also have access to information with which to make informed decisions on whether to invest. And so if you're a syndicator, this is a massive tailwind from you. There's a whole new audience of investors that are opening up. There's all this information that is educating them. And I think that the the decade that's going to be in front of us will be some of the best for syndicators as, you know, this syndication model, this kind of crowdfunding model uh, becomes more um, kind of mainstream and is not considered kind of an outlier way to invest. I said when I was starting this that investors are starved for yield. There's inflation coming. And real estate provides a hedge against inflation. It provides true yield opportunities. And there is going to be a flight to safety. And I think real estate is going to be one of those. And again, another huge tailwind for real estate syndicators. On the flip side of that, maybe one of the risks that we still don't know is in the traditional way that things have always been done, you had you know a few investors that controlled all the money. And the good thing about them is they're always there in an up market, but they're also usually there in a down market. Um, folks with big bank accounts, institutions, private equity with big uh, abilities to write checks, they're there for you at the top of the market and they're there for you at the bottom of the market. I think you know we've been in an up cycle now since 2009, almost 12 years. I think the big thing everybody wants to know is, are these individual investors, these high net worth investors, these kind of smaller family office investors that participate in syndications, will they be around in the next big correction? Uh, that's yet to be seen. I think another, you know, again, an upside is that LPs now have access to deals like they never have before. On the downside is, you know, when you have three or 400 investors, it's tough to keep everybody happy. Um, and, and it's not just about returns. And so one of the downsides to syndicating is you have you can often have lots of personalities. Uh, you never know where somebody's at in their life. 
And it, you know, you could have a rogue relationship or a rogue personality that you have to manage that when you're dealing with investors that aren't quote unquote professional investors, like a private equity or an institution or a really big family office, you might be dealing with things outside of your typical investment scope. Again, most professional investors are kind of trained to deal with the ups and the downs of investing. Uh, you might have folks that maybe have never experienced a down cycle and, you know, you're really going to see their true colors if, if you hit a down cycle. So we're always thinking about how to manage um, a lot of personalities. And really the answer to that is consistent communication. I've already said it on this podcast, but people can accept good news. They love good news. They can actually accept bad news. What they don't like is surprises. And so we are always mitigating consistent, transparent communication so that we're always in a flow with our investors and we're never catching them off guard. They should always be in the know and should never be surprised. And I'm hitting on this because it's super important. And what you'll usually find is that people stop communicating if things aren't going exactly as planned. That's almost a telltale signal. And it's something we do to mitigate the risk of, you know, investing, syndicating, all of the above. Okay. So now I'm going to move into some data and statistics around uh, kind of the GP world and how GPs are looking at the world from a syndication perspective. This data was recently brought in by Juniper Square in a massive survey they ran, and this is all in relation to expectations in 2021, which bode well for syndicators. So the first is the top priority for uh, most GPs in 2021 was scaling their business. 87% expect to raise more capital next year, and 89% expect to do more acquisitions. GPs who report increasing their investments in technology are more than twice as likely to be on track to raise more capital in 2021 versus 2020. Sponsors and GPs who report increasing their investments in technology are more likely to be on track to do acquisitions this year versus 2020. So 53% versus 31%. 73% of GPs say they will invest even more in software in 2021 than they did in 2020. This is a really interesting piece of data that's noteworthy. 93% of syndicators are relying on referrals from existing investors. The takeaway I took from this is make sure, obviously, you have a great track record and can execute, but make sure you have an investor experience worth talking about. 98% of syndicators plan to raise more money in 2021 than they did in 2020. 65% of syndicators are using a CRM. 62% are offering data rooms. This is a way to stand out amongst your competition. Those using technology reported average capital commitments that were twice as large as those not using technology. For many, offering data rooms saved time in the fundraising process. Sponsors not using these were 76% more likely to rate investor presentations as the most time-consuming part of the fundraising process. Okay, I'm going to take three questions that I got from Twitter that are more specific to just Fort Capital and how we've thought about things. And then we will wrap it up. One of them was, have you had to or will you consider adjusting your acquisition and LP return criteria given how hot the market is? 
That's a really good question. Obviously, we have been in a bull cycle for a long time and the market is up. What I tell people is Fort Capital's in the capital deployment business. We are forced to make investments with the best information that we have at the time and try and mitigate risk as much as possible. And so I think a good GP or sponsor is always trying to understand where they are in the market, and they're always trying to adjust how they underwrite deals to match where they are in the market. Time was always an indicator of how you end up doing, but we're in the business of just trying to make the best decision we can at the time and provide an attractive opportunity for those that want to invest in industrial, an opportunity to do that. You know, the other good thing about real estate that we don't have to get into on this episode, but time and inflation are the best friends of a real estate owner. And so even if you invest at the top of the market, yeah, is there ever going to be a day that we invest in something that might go down in value for a period of time? Sure. It would be silly for me to say that's not the case. But the good news is if you don't over leverage yourself and you don't take extraordinary amounts of risk, and what I mean by over leverage or extraordinary amounts of risk is, you know, where you see people get out of whack is when it wasn't a good deal to begin with. But if you add enough leverage and play enough with a spreadsheet, you can make anything look good. Leverage magnifies returns. It also uh, it magnifies them in both ways. And so, yes, we're always understanding what our acquisition and LP return criteria are given the market. And we're always trying to make the best decision no matter where we are in the cycle. Our job is not to predict, though, where we are in the cycle. It's just to make the best decisions with the information we know because nobody at the end of the day ever knows, quote unquote, where we are in the cycle. It's all hindsight is 2020. Another great question. What part of your structure has changed the most over time? Honestly, I don't think there's been a whole lot that's changed over time. We have always stuck to a PREF split model. I think the one thing that I've, and I spoke about this earlier, that has changed and developed over time is the appetite and the confidence that we have to charge fees to our deals. And again, this is not a uh, egregious fee-setting mechanism. But what I believe is that to invest in a great operator that has a great team, they have to be collecting fees and those have to be market fees. You know, we used to be very light on fees. Our opco was barely keeping its head above water for a long period of time. You know, we always said like if the world collapsed tomorrow, you know, we would have no consistent fee income. It was hard to hire great people. And so the thing that's changed most of the time is we've leveled up. And what I would tell you is the majority of great sponsors and great teams charge market fees, but I would also tell you they outperform in returns as well. You know, you want the best team possible on the playing field. And if you want to do that consistently over time, you have to charge a market fee. So that's probably been the bigger change than, than structure itself. You know, I talked about the long-term structure that we added, no pref with the split model. So basically uh, splitting all cash flows day one, that's a much lo- uh, better long-term incentive. And then another question I got to ask is, what is the most surprising thing that investors are often interested in? Look, investors are all interested in what the returns are. That's always, that's the easy one. But what I would tell you, and this happens uh, more and more, is 
They want to know how long we're going to hold stuff. So people have different thresholds on time horizons. Younger people that haven't built a lot of wealth yet tend to like short-term holds more. Get in, get out, make my money, and kind of help me get rich and build, get wealthy. Older investors that might already have plenty of capital or wealth, they're really interested in long-term holds. They're in wealth protection mode. They're in, um, they want to create good tax situations for themselves. So hold periods one, two, and this is something that became more and more apparent to me through conversations. And again, we talked about this earlier, you know, really good investors are really interested in what else are we focused on? So if they're going to invest in an industrial deal of ours, and we also have, you know, a a townhome deal and an office deal and a self-storage deal, that's not interesting if it's hard for you to provide that you have a competitive advantage in any one of those things. Now, what we used to do and what was valid was our competitive advantage was just we were really good experts on Fort Worth. We just knew the market really well. Well, it was harder to scale that strategy at the time. And when we became more singular focused on one asset type, the conversations got much easier. The more sophisticated investors were all in on us and it proved and paid dividends. And so they're really interested in what else are we working on or how focused are we on the type of investment that they're getting in. So thank you so much for joining me today on Syndication 101. I've tried to cover a lot of ground. I'm sure there's things I missed out on. And if you would like to know more, please reach out to me on Twitter at Fort Worth Chris. You can send me an email, but I'd be happy to keep answering uh, more questions on this topic, which I'm passionate about. And thank you so much for continuing to join me on this journey. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Ford Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Ford Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Ford Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.